0: Hello and welcome, my name is Joe Frost and here with my co-host Peter Linus, this is Being Human.
1: So we are so excited to have Rachel Gardner with us coming from Sunny Blackburn, where she leads an intergenerational church plant with her husband, Jason, and she is also really involved in youthscape in various ways, has huge expertise, written a number of books. We're going to pick up some of the themes from those as we journey our conversation together. So Rachel, welcome to the Being Human podcast.
2: Thank you very much. I love being here with your beautiful faces.
1: <laughs> well, look, for people who don't know you, give us a story or two that might give people a kind of frame of reference and a, a kind of picture on who you are.
2: Do you know, I'd like to go quite far back to my childhood. It feels like, it feels like a therapy session. Is that all right? The two stories that define me, I guess the first is... My lovely family, we were effectively a homeless family when I was about 12. So for five years, we lived with a lovely old man called Ernie, who we told him we'd be with you for two weeks. And we ended up being with him for five years. And then we moved from there. And to Ashburn and Place, a Christian community. So I think deep in my gut is a little bit of a longing always to live in community. So if you were to come and hang out with us here in Blackburn, you'd probably see a little bit of fragments of that in how we live in this community. Another story would be around our family. Jason and I can't have biological children, but God's given us two fantastic children through adoption. And so that would be probably a key story for, for who I am and how probably how I understand salvation and being invited into God's family that adoption theme resonates really strongly for us here in a deprived community but also in our little family unit none of us are connected by blood we're connected by deep commitment and love and that feels like a beautiful picture of church
0: amen and I, I, I... Even in those mini little stories, you are already telling us about your commitment to relationship, to fostering community, to getting to know people, that deep sense of home, even in a sense Mm -hmm. of homelessness. So this has become your kind of lifeblood, hasn't it? Relationships, uh, connection with people that you may not necessarily have. Known for very long. Where did these passions emerge? How have they formed? Why are they so integral to you, do you think?
2: That's such a great question. Where it sort of lands for me is youth ministry. I think I, as a teenager, I wasn't a very cool teenager. Do you remember The Cure? So I was a teenager when The Cure were big. And then as the Spice Girls were entering the scene, I was leaving school and going to university. And so I think I, I sort of came in on the wave of a generation that wanted to understand. Deep community and deep connection, connection not just with your family, but with your community and with the planet. And I think every time I've gone to scripture or connected with my Christian spirituality, I think I see there such a beautiful model for connecting with people of diverse backgrounds, diverse histories, and seeing that what it means to belong to God and God being father. I don't I mean I as an older teenager I rebelled massively and thought that Christianity was definitely beneath me and I'd outgrown it. So I I had a year where I tried Sufism and Buddhism, mainly because of the guys that I was attracted to. It was <laughs> it wasn't just a kind of a spiritual quest. I was also like fancying every guy that walked around. Um, but I think I I, I came back to Christianity, because I met Jesus in a powerful way around the lakes of Ashburnham, and also because actually I didn't find in any other worldview, in any other ancient text, I didn't find this story of family, of genuine belonging, of that all of us are one in Christ. There are no no male or female, slave nor free. We are one, and I, and I, I found that to be the most attractive, captivating idea for humanity as a late teenager. That's kind of fueled me ever since,
1: I think. One of the things we talk about, so we are really interested in this connection theme in the Being Human project. We're looking at connection as one part of our kind of lens on the world. And you've touched on that theme quite a lot. I wonder, you, you have slightly dated yourself with The Cure and Spice Girls. So you've been doing youth work for a few years. I, I wonder what you've seen in terms of even changes around, we talk about this expressive individualism in our culture and how that, resists, but certainly pushes against some of our desire for connection and how we navigate that. How have you seen that change? And even in the different places where you've been involved in youth ministry?
2: I think adolescence is a time when human beings are connection-seeking missiles, aren't they? So I think every emerging generation of young people are extraordinarily bold Um, And innovative in how they build connection. But I think what is radically different, and and I've been a youth worker for about 20 years. I'm not an expert on human history through the ages. But what I've observed in the last 20 years is that quite literally when Instagram arrived, there were some fascinating sociological trends that immediately changed and one of them was around unplanned teenage pregnancy. We had the highest rate in Western Europe, and suddenly, literally overnight, Instagram arrived, and that went off this way. That just wasn't an issue anymore. And concerns about young people experiencing bullying, and the mental health crisis sort of beginning to massively accelerate from there. So I think What's quite interesting at the moment is that young people are doing what they've always had to do, which is ask the big who am I?" questions and what's my purpose and who likes me and do I like me? And what is intimacy and what makes for safe friendships? But they're doing that against the backdrop of a media, a medium that says you, you are your own God. You need to find your inner spark of who you are. You need to work out who you are and And your job is then to reveal that, to express that, to unfurl that to society. And I think whereas in the past the heroic narrative for connection was, as you mature through adolescence, as you become an adult, you learn how to self-sacrifice, because mm-hmm. actually deep connection requires self-sacrifice um that's what we've always known that about love but now the heroic narrative is as you grow through adolescence and adulthood what you need to do is against all opposition in fact the more opposition the better against all opposition you have to reveal this specific thing about who you are that only you know and the weight of that is too much for a soul to bear it's crushing so although there's lots to critique about the past and there's lots to embrace about people discovering their dreams their instincts their hopes that weight on a generation is is potentially traumatizing and suffocating
0: yeah I yeah I, I... Even just in the last couple of weeks, I saw two things. I was listening to an interview um, about main character energy, and that, uh, that whole idea of, of you've just got to be bold, you've just got to be courageous, you've just got to own the fact that you are the main character of your narrative and off you go. And then just walking down the street yesterday, just be true to you. That that is the only mandate of your life, is just be true to you. And just thinking, gosh, the the poverty. Of that storyline, is in relationship and is in connection and is caring for somebody else and saying, "I will be less so that you can be more." Where does humility kick into that space? And just yeah, I, I find what you said about Instagram and pregnancy mm. fascinating. Mm. I remember growing up in the in the later nineties, and just we could have started a crush at our school. Uh, by the time that we were sitting our GCSEs, I grew up in. Council of State in Dorset, where genuinely there was nothing to do apart from get stoned and have a baby. And there was five or six babies in our year, and then it just fell off a cliff. And do you think that is that we almost l- lost, in respect, an expression of proximity, of actually needing to connect and be near each other?
2: I think that – I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Joe. I think what we saw overnight with Instagram was that um, – and again, I'm not celebrating unplanned teen pregnancy and saying, I wish we were back in those glory days. But I think what we suddenly saw was that young people who struggle socially, young people do, adolescents do. They're supposed to because they're working out the cues, are then suddenly abandoned online to do all that self-exploration that they have to do. But they do it with their peers. And, and whereas normally you'd be at school, you'd have a fallout, you'd work out how you know, social cues, you come home, you'd chill. You're with people that know you and get you and can reflect to you actually, we know who you are, you're great, you're this, you're brilliant at that. Actually, suddenly young people are kind of locked away in an online world where there isn't that care, there isn't that kindness. And they're trying to express who they are and receiving huge amounts of judgment. So I think for young people, they desperately don't want to be basic. Like the worst crime is being basic, being normal, being, you know, just I'm simply me. And yet how on earth do you work out who you are? If you if you are not surrounded by all different ages, um a community of people who you're in proximity to who say, "I think you're being a bit of a plonker today," or actually don't you don't do believe that lie about yourself. So I think I think the the worst social experiment <laughs> in the world has been social media abandoning young people to social media. It says she who uses it all the time. So I, there was a young person recently who said to me, "If they invented social media today, you know they'd." see it as a class day drug and this was a teenager saying they'd realize what this is doing to us this is like giving us heroin well, so I yeah. think there is There are lots. But I think the challenge is often the church sometimes, our difficulty is that we have blamed young people for a world they did not create. They didn't create social media. They didn't create the world that that, that they're now working it through. And also we're expecting them to come up with the technology and the solutions to make the world a better place and solve famine and solve hunger. So the pressures on this generation are, they're quite intense, actually. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to pay attention to that more.
1: A huge and so connection seeking missiles. I mean, I just, I, I don't think I've ever made notes during a podcast interview. <laughs> I've made so many notes already. I'm loving that. And I'm curious, we talked about social media. I totally agree. Do you and you, your experience see a distinction between how males and females operate in that space and around the connection part? Because I mean, you've obviously written the Girl Deconstruction Project and particularly around females. You've said young people quite a lot. And I'm wondering, would you distinguish between the sexes in terms of that connection point and their yeah. engagement?
2: Yes and no. I think probably absolutely the trends will tell us that mental health disorders are increasing in, across genders, mm-hmm. but it's still always higher among girls. But actually, it's a similar increase. Mm-hmm. So I think the wrong thing would be to say it's worse for girls. Now, statistically, it is worse for girls, But it is bad for boys. I think interestingly is to see what boys and girls do with social media. So last night we had our drop-in and we got loads of old-fashioned arcade games that they were playing and had great chats with them. And our 23-year-old male youth workers are like, this is a blowback from my past, and I was feeling so old. But boys will tell, they'll say to me, Yeah, I sit and watch someone else play Minecraft, and I'll do that for hours. So boys are seeking connection through so, social using social media as another way to have lads sort of banter and watching someone else doing stuff so boys are using it for very much what they'd be doing in the bedroom with their mates in the past I think what we're seeing girls do is girls I think are are seeing it more as a place to affirm their beauty to affirm I think where they are in the pecking order of girls and mm. I think boys are more critical of girls online than girls are of boys. Now, I'm making blanket statements here, right? mm. and I, I think hashtag, I've not done any research on that. But there are enough research trends out there to say that young people. And I think the struggle when I'm speaking to teenagers here, I think what I'm seeing now, which I didn't see 10 years ago, was. It's very rare to find a teenager that doesn't think that social media is harmful for them, but Mm. they just have learned to accept the harm because they'll also find their online crocheting club, you know, and they want to learn how to crochet. So they kind of tolerate the fact that someone will send them pictures of their genitalia. It's just that, well, I've got to put up with that. I've got to put up with the horror and the cancel culture and you know having everybody know my stuff and and i think the other comment about social media is that whereas social media sort of means that your transgressions stay with you for a long time mm-hmm. so even if you move schools you arrive at a new school and everybody already knows your secrets so i think there are no safe spaces a girl was saying to me yesterday i'm not safe online because the press is online I'm not safe in my bedroom at home on my own because I've got poor mental health and I can't be on my own. I'm not safe walking down the street on my own. Where am I safe? No. And I think that when we talk about connection and young and emerging generations, I think we also need to talk about safety because I think there's probably a poor understanding of safety that goes hand in hand with a poor understanding of connection. And when those two intersect, it's toxic, very harmful for young people.
1: I mean, I have questions coming out of my ears. Like I could, I guess one of the things, so beginning to think like, how do we engage? So I'm, I love the cultural analysis that then one of the things we want to do is like, how do we begin to respond? And thinking even around ideas around love and desire, because in your book, The Sex Thing, you've written about both those ideas and a lot more. Like, what does our culture get right on some of those ideas? But where do we need to respond better? Because I think we have... Very limit. I mean, something like desire, for example, is a classic. Christians is almost like just repressed the desire if it didn't exist. And I think you say this in the book. If it didn't, oh, that would be easier. But of course, it does. And we actually have a very positive narrative of desire and worship. But I think we're bad at explaining it. So where where does culture do well in this? And because I think again, we want to avoid the simple. Oh, culture is really bad on all this stuff. Of course, we can say that. But so love and desire, in particular, maybe some frames to start thinking about that.
2: And, and I would think, and I think as well that in every culture there are there are sort of ideas within every culture that can actually pull a, pull a community closer to be more open to scriptural ideas and there are ideas that actually shut people down and in youth ministry we, we talk about the god positive nuns young people who have no religion no, don't believe in god but would like there to be a god they are a vastly different group to the god negative nuns and we did some research recently as Youthscape and found that the idea of love, of God being loving, OK, a distant God, a bit of a benevolent God in the sky, you know, not a not, not God that meets us in the person of Jesus, but but the idea a God who loves is the most attractive idea to younger people. And I would say probably across the population. Mm. So I think I would say love is the bridge and it's probably the most contested and fought over idea actually at the moment and it's not surprising because it is the idea that will hold people more warmly towards the idea of God's love. Now what's interesting at the moment is that the closer that love comes to us, so the historical Jesus who is love in action And who presents us with the love of the father, but it's a love that wants to come actually inside us, wants to transform us, wants to change us, wants to change. And that's terrifying. Young Mm -hmm. people use words like eerie, yucky, (laughs) like, oh, that's weird. Again, because we've got a generation growing up being told if someone online says to you, oh, you're lovely and and you're beautiful and I love you, be deeply suspicious of someone that you don't know saying that. So it's really interesting how these cultural trends mean that we've got to find new ways to talk about Mm -hmm. what it means that God loves and meets us in Jesus and transforms us. That's a hard concept in culture. And so if you take that one step further, this historical Jesus, who is God's love, actually sacrificing our life to him, inviting him to show us how to order our sex lives. I mean, that notion, can you see how alien that is? if you can cope with a God loving us from afar, why would he have any problem with what I want to do? Because he loves, he, he loves. But the moment this God comes close in Jesus and says, actually, I don't just want to love you. I want to restore you and redeem you. And so it means we're going to have to have some chats about what's harming you and hurting you. And where you, that feels really challenging which is why the gospel is always good news and is and needs like Leslie Newbegin said needs to be forwarded to a new address in every generation so it's not that we don't talk about any of this but we need to become more mindful of what is the way in for a generation who whose understanding of love will take some unfurling
0: yeah that was going to be my exact question which is this idea that the compelling nature of a narrative that God loves you is so prevalent in our culture and yet an understanding of what love is Mm. is so contested Mm. and that unpicking of when I talk about being loved and when you talk about being loved are we using a word in a way that carries significant shared meaning Mm. yeah and if it doesn't then the story I think I'm telling is a very different story to the story you're hearing from me. And at that moment, I wonder whether or not that's the place of contention often when it comes to sharing the compelling truth of the gospel.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think as a Christian, I, I would say that my stable identity comes from knowing that I am loved and more than even knowing that I am a new creation, that I'm a citizen of heaven, that I'm adopted because those truths that we see in scripture, on the days where I feel most vulnerable to just letting my desires or my instincts or my fear or my anger take over, what holds me, what, I mean, Tim Keller talks about this, what captivates my imagination and what gives me the most secure, stable identity is that in Christ, God died for me. And he gets to name me because he died for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the historical Jesus who lived and died, it sounds so incredible, incredible, that I think because with our apologetics, we would tend to very quickly want to bring people to the cross because we because it is that is the core of the gospel. And it's not that we don't talk about the cross, but I think, Joe, as you're saying, we need to be unpacking love because I say within culture we understand that love is about sacrifice if you ask young people who do you feel most loved by it's probably mum mum fights for me on the school gate she goes and deals with the bullies she talks to the school when I'm being bullied she sits up with me at three in the morning when I'm crying and my anxiety is too much like people have within them the stories of people that love them and they show that by how they sacrifice I think sometimes it's making those connections. What are the who are the stories of sacrificial love in culture Mm. that then become the bridge to understanding the love of God And, and that God's love will always be beyond our understanding. So this is not this is not containing God's love. It's simply saying each generation there are ideas about God or ideas about life that we need to understand and unpack well.
1: And I just want to keep pushing a little on that desire point, because like, we are in a culture that has such a strong narrative around desire, and we often link desire, not always, but often to sexual desire. It's a key part of it. And yet there is this nervousness, and not just for young people. In fact, arguably, they are the people who do talk about it, but a generation above is really reluctant. Like, How do we begin that conversation about redeeming desire in a healthy way?
2: I, I think you're right, and this is where we need to admit we have we sort of are suffering from probably decades of, <laughs> you know, like Victorian values around stuff, let alone secularism. And I think probably as churches, those of us that are church leaders, we recognise that we are leading churches that are discipled by secularism as much as by Christianity. And so these concepts are very difficult. I My, my thing, and, and maybe there's a naivety in me, But I I feel that what is it's the capturing the imagination, and I think I think mostly in society today, it's not that we embrace every desire that we have. I think mostly we're afraid of our desires. We're afraid. We don't quite know what it is we feel and what are we feeling. So we have words like hangry. You know, we're, we're the, we are the society that comes up like that because we're like, oh, am I angry? Am I hungry? I don't really know, but I'm feeling a feeling. And I would say that probably across generations, we are the society that, that are feeling a feeling, but we don't quite know what that feeling is. And I would say scripture says that our desires, if you trace them, they will always come home to God. They eventually will always bring us home to God. But if we live in a society that says quick fix that, if you're wanting something, then go and go and find your comfort. Go and ease your distress. Go and ease that uncomfortable feeling by eating, sleeping around, pornography, masturbating, fashion, whatever it is then people actually never really allowing themselves to hold the discomfort of desire, the the wonder of desire, but also the discomfort of desire, because desire makes you vulnerable. It means that you can't provide what you need. You actually need somebody else to come and satisfy you or something else. And so I think in church, how we have those conversations are tough. They're tough because we know that boundaries in scripture are for our safety and our success. So we don't want to have conversations that are just like, let's all this week check our desires and hold that, you know, people need to be held safely and kindly and pastorally. But if if people heard in church communities, our desire for God actually is quite complex. Mm. And sometimes the path to understanding a deep desire for God is with your mentor, or with your pastoral carer, or with your small group being real about your feelings and what you desire and where that's taken you and what might Jesus be saying to you and who could you be accountable to and celebrating you all the way along. That might be a more healthy way into exploring desire. Because in scripture, we, desire is something that we are told explicitly, Jesus is king over. Mm. <laughs> He's not afraid of our desires. Yeah. And one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is self. Control, which is the most liberating gift and enables us then to address our desires safely.
0: I love that idea. And you've mentioned the word a couple of times in different parts of your story the idea of holiness um, and the idea of, of God's presence being holy. And I wonder in our Victorian puritanical nature, we have described desire especially romantic or intimate desire as as debased Mm. and and set apart from holiness and holiness is other holiness is aspirational holiness is perfection Um, um we talk about this in 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 the book but uh, i just love the way tim Mackey flips my understanding of holiness as the invitation to come near to god mm. god is holy because he is near to himself and so actually the nearer we get to god's presence the holier we get and when we carry our desires near to god the holier they get Yes. And actually this redemptive presence invitation to come close as opposed to separate, to pull apart, to be set apart. That's all on us. And the weight of that is too much. It, actually having the confidence to carry your desires, your questions, your needs, your wants into a place of worship because God is sovereign over all of it. And he knows all of it anyway. Yeah. What a beautiful invitation to our young people who are wrestling with the enormity of what they want but don't know how to to acknowledge that
2: Mm. and I think we see in our work with young people that this distant god who they want to hold at a distance because it's terrifying the thought that there might be a being that comes close the moment they are in situations where they can excavate their lived experiences um be real about what what's actually happening that's that is the place where Oh, I can connect that with how Jesus then talks to the woman at the well or to Zacchaeus, and oh, I see what he was doing there. And suddenly, you make those connections. I I love that definition of holiness. I think that's really beautiful. And I I'm just thinking, listening to you, we see that all the way through Scripture that so so Jesus, so God sends Moses comes up the mountain side to receive the Ten Commandments. Like people can't get close. God is holy. There's a distance there, and then we see. All the way through scripture, God coming closer and closer. And in Jesus on the you know the, the Beatitudes, what we're told explicitly by Matthew is that as Jesus is like the second Moses, giving these this is the blueprint for relationship and life, the crowds can't get close enough. And yeah. we're told specifically that we are drawn to the holiness of God, we long for it, we crave it. Um, because we're built for that connection. I, so I love I love that definition. Oh, so I, I
0: love it too, and that. Oh, uh, that bit about uh, Moses being taken up the up the mountain t- because it's the holy place. It's Horab. It's the burning bush. It's the same place. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, God's invitation was to the whole people, mm-hmm. and actually, in that moment, the people refused to come near. They said, "You go in our place." Mm-hmm. Actually, they were scared of the closeness of God, mm-hmm. and actually, there is a fear of if God if God knows me, will He still love me? And just to quote Tim Keller again, Tim Keller for the win. Um, he he uh, apparently wrote, um, to be loved and not known is the worst kind of superficiality. To be known but not loved is our deepest fear. And I just, the invitation of God's story is that he knows you completely and he loves you utterly. And that's, isn't that the most revolutionary story out there. But also, more and more I'm encountering so incredible that young people almost dare not believe it.
1: And not just young people. I I, very reluctantly, I'm going to sort of feel I have to cut across slightly and and draw us in a little to a close. I know, I know. Rachel, this has been unbelievable. I mean, so much gold in there. There's so many things I'd love to pursue. But in a sense, I'm going to leave you a pretty open last question. Because we probably don't have loads of young people listening. We'll have some, but we probably are more likely to have some parents and some church leaders. And just as you think about that question of connection and how we do this, I mean, I suppose it's a last piece of advice. You've covered social media, you've covered connection, you've covered how we respond differently as both young people and as males and females to so much of what's going on. You could pick any one of those threads in a sense, and give us your final words of wisdom, particularly, I guess, for the church and that piece of what is being redeemed in Jesus in these moments in the connection, which I love what you were zooming in on. Last word to you.
2: Jesus redeems, doesn't he, because he he frees us from what harms us and he restores, he puts us back into what's right. And I think our Christian communities, our families can be places where young people experience that redemption and restoration. But we've got to be prepared to have open, honest culture. My lasting point would be so much of what we've talked about, particularly for young people, but for anybody that walks into our churches, not from Christian backgrounds. A lot of what we talked about doesn't sound credible and it doesn't sound possible and it sounds complex. Where that changes is where lovely folks in our community meet a bunch of people who embody this, whose very lives suddenly make this credible, make this plausible, and make this simple. And I think the more we can, I mean, it's my plug for intergenerational church, really, but the more that people can be safely, rightly exposed to the lives of followers of Jesus who are saying, I'm learning every day, month by month, year by year, what it means to say, to be obedient to Jesus, to willingly, happily, joyfully, painfully sometimes, but willingly surrender all that I am, all the conflicting messages to surrender Jesus. Because actually what I discover is hope and life and peace in the storm and a purpose and a future hope and a a way to be free from harmful relationships and harmful behaviours. That suddenly embodies, and I love that because obviously the only incarnate being is Jesus. The rest of us are not incarnate. We didn't pre-exist, but we embody, we embody the gospel. So how are we embodying the gospel for a new society that doesn't know where to begin with this, but are hungry for how to be human? So thank you for writing your book and encouraging us to be more human because that actually is what it means to be more Christian. (laughs) So thank you for that book.
1: Well, thank you. That's a word from our publicist there. That's Rachel Gardner, who's <laughs> our agent. You've come back to New Begin again. You talked, I think, earlier about forwarding the gospel. It's always being forwarded to a new address. The only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation who lives by it. It's that call to absolutely incarnate, to live out exactly what we said. What it is to be human in this moment. Rachel Gardner, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your writing. The most recent one, the sex thing reimagining conversations with young people about sex a really really helpful book we're waving it at each other uh, over the zoom but hey it's been wonderful honestly so much gold in there the connection seeking missiles is the phrase i will probably take (laughs) away but thank you thank you thank you